one of the most famous stories in the scripture is that of David and Goliath. Most people know that story, even if they're not Christians, even if they haven't studied the Bible. Most are familiar with that story, and for good reason. Of course, we know in that story that Goliath, uh, the hero of the Philistines, taunted the people of Israel, the Lord's army. He taunted them and said, send out someone to fight me. Let's do battle. If they can defeat me, then you, then you win. But everyone within the, the Lord's army was afraid of going out and fighting Goliath. They viewed that as a death sentence. He was a mighty warrior, a mighty giant, until the shepherd David came along. And when David came along, he was not afraid because his confidence was in the Lord. And so David was willing to do battle. He was willing to take on Goliath. And we know what happens. He took him down. He defeated him. He put him to death. And the the tables were turned. Then the Philistines became afraid and terrified. And they ran away. And the people of Israel won the battle that day. When we think about that story, it's good to look at the commendable example of David and to see how he put his confidence and trust in the Lord. But I think that story gives us much more than a commendable example. That story gives us a picture of what we need. What do we need? We need someone who can fight and win the battle for us. It's easy for us to compare ourselves to David, but brothers and sisters, we need to compare ourselves to the Israelites who did not want to fight that battle. We too need someone who's willing to go out to fight and defeat our enemies, which are greater than Goliath. I'm talking about sin, death, and the devil. We need a hero. We need someone who can win the battle for us. We're going through the gospel of Luke right now, and we find ourselves in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. The first three chapters, we've covered a lot of time. The gospel began with the period of time right before the, the births of John the Baptist and Jesus. We read about the events that led up to their births. We read about the births of John and, and Jesus. We read what happened shortly after the birth of Jesus. And then we jumped ahead to when Jesus was 12 years old. And then we jumped ahead again to when John the Baptist began his public ministry and what took place in his ministry and how Jesus went out to be baptized by John. And we're continuing now the narrative in Luke chapter 4 in this series we are calling The Surprising Kingdom. The kingdom of God arrived in the person and the ministry of Jesus, but it came in a way that was utterly surprising, which is actually good news for us. Here at the beginning of Luke chapter 4, Luke recorded a time of testing for Jesus. And this period of testing is critically important for us. I'm going to read Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13, and I encourage you to follow along. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, 
man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The Holy Spirit inspired Luke to record this time of testing because of its significance. This story is significant within the entire storyline of Scripture. It is significant within the context of Luke's gospel. And it is critically important for you and me. And so to understand this text, we need to understand it within the broader context of all scripture, as well as within its immediate context in Luke's gospel. And here is what I hope we will see this morning. The testing and failure of God's people, the testing and triumph of Jesus, and why it is critically important for you and me. So first, let's consider the testing and failure of God's people. At the end of Luke chapter three, we saw how the genealogy of Jesus was traced all the way back to Adam, the first man who is referred to as the son of God. Adam and Eve were the first man and woman whom God created. And when he made them, he placed them in the garden of Eden. He gave them a beautiful place to live. He provided for them abundantly. He gave them all they needed. They had a wonderful, perfect life, enjoying communion with him in this beautiful place. As their creator and king, God gave them good commands to follow, which included one prohibition. In Genesis 2, 15 to 17, we read, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God's commands were good. And obeying God's commands would lead to their flourishing. Moreover, they were to represent God in the world as vice regents. A vice regent is someone who acts in the place of a ruler, governor, or sovereign. Adam and Eve represented God's authority to the world over which he they were given dominion. And so what we have in the first two chapters of the Bible is God's people, Adam and Eve, living in God's place, the Garden of Eden, living under God's rule, representing him in the world, and enjoying God's presence. It was good. But in chapter 3, 
the devil invaded the garden. In chapter three, verses one through four, we read, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Do you see what he did there? He questioned God's word and placed seeds of doubt in Eve's mind about what God said and how she was to understand it and apply it. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree of the garden? Of course, that's a distortion. That's not what God said. Did God really say that? Immediately, he's twisting, placing these seeds of doubt. You're not really going to die. But he went further, calling God's character and goodness into question. God knows that if you eat this, your eyes will be opened. You'll experience something better. In other words, God's withholding from you. He's keeping something good from you. He's saying you should take matters into your own hands. You should do what you think is best. You should act in your own interest. At that moment, Adam, who was with Eve, should have done his job. His job was to work and keep the garden. And in working and keeping the garden, he should have known the devil had no place there. It was his responsibility, and he had the authority to kick the devil out. To say, no, we're not listening to you. You do not belong here. Get out. That is not what happened. Adam and Eve rejected God's purpose for their lives and his rule over their lives by disobeying his good command. In chapter three, verse six, we read, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was able to, was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. It was a devastating and catastrophic decision. Greg Gilbert writes, when Adam and Eve bit into the fruit, therefore they weren't just violating some arbitrary command. They were rejecting God's authority over them and declaring their independence from him. Adam and Eve wanted to be, as the serpent promised them, like God. So both of them seized on what they thought was an opportunity to shed the vice regency and take the crown itself. In all the universe, there was only one thing God had not placed under Adam's feet, God himself. Yet Adam decided this arrangement was not good enough for him. So he rebelled. Adam and Eve's rebellion 
against God plunged the world into darkness. And what we see from that point on is darkness, rebellion against God, a broken and shattered world. We see violence. We see immorality. We see idolatry. We see all kinds of pain and sorrow. Scripture is brutally honest about some whom we might consider to be the heroes of the story. Noah is a hero of the story. And yet what does scripture tell us after the flood? He was drunk and naked in his tent. Abraham, a hero of the story, became afraid and lied about his wife. Moses killed a guy. We can go on about all the heroes of the story and the sins that they committed. What we see is that the rebellion against God brought darkness into the world. But God did not give up on humanity. He called a man named Abraham to be the father of a nation whom the Lord would bless and through whom the families of the earth would be blessed. Abraham's descendants became the nation of Israel. In the book of Exodus, we read about the brutal oppression the Israelites suffered under Pharaoh in Egypt. But we also read how the Lord heard their cries and saw their affliction and delivered them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. In Exodus 4, 22 through 23, God said to Moses, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. God acted on behalf of Israel, whom he referred to as his firstborn son. And indeed, he brought judgment on Pharaoh and Egypt and delivered the people of Israel out of bondage. He redeemed them. He saved them. He rescued them. And sadly, like Adam, Israel failed when they were tested and gave into temptation, rebelling against the Lord time and time again. At the beginning of Exodus 16, the people were in the wilderness and they were hungry. But instead of trusting in the Lord's provision, instead of believing that the Lord would provide for their needs, when they had evidence to believe so, they grumbled against the Lord. They rebelled against him. They said, we wish we were still back in Egypt. No gratitude for what the Lord had done for them. How the Lord had delivered them and, and, and rescued them. We find another example in the book of Numbers. When the time came for the Lord to bring his people into the land he promised to give them, they sent 12 spies into the land who spied out the land for 40 days before bringing back a report. Unfortunately, 10 of the 12 spies caused God's people to doubt that he would be faithful to give them the land and, and, and drive out their enemies before them. They caused them to be fearful and afraid. We're going to die if we try to do this. Two spies, Joshua and Caleb, said, no, the Lord will give this land to us. They thought, sought to instill faith in God's people. Sadly, they gave in to the temptation to be afraid, to doubt that the Lord would fight on their behalf. And so they did not do what God commanded them to do. And they suffered the consequences of that. While in the wilderness, 
The Israelites were tempted to doubt the Lord and his ability to provide for them and drive out their enemies from the promised land. Despite the mighty acts and loving kindness of the Lord, the Israelites gave in to temptation, responding to the Lord with unbelief and disobedience. And of course, we see this again and again in Scripture. One of the tragic patterns we see in Scripture is the failure of God's people time and time again during times of testing and temptation. They failed to obey God, taking him at his word. They failed to trust his goodness and his provision and his ability to defend them and protect them and defeat their enemies. They failed to worship and serve him alone, worshiping and serving all kinds of false gods. When we read chapter four of Luke's gospel, this is the background and the context we are to remember. We are to remember the testing and failure of God's people time and time again. With that in mind, we turn to the testing and triumph of Jesus. Not only do we need to understand these 13 verses in the context of the whole of Scripture, but we also need to understand them more narrowly within the context of Luke's gospel. When the angels appeared to the shepherds on the night Jesus was born, they declared, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. They declared, A Savior has come. For you, to save you. Save us from what? To save us from our greatest enemies. The events of our passage took place before Jesus began his public ministry. In chapter 3, we read about the ministry of John the Baptist, who was sent to prepare the way for Jesus. And when Jesus was baptized by John, we read that the Spirit descended on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven declared, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus was anointed by the Spirit and declared the Son of God. But before Luke moved the narrative forward with the temptation of Jesus, he provided the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam, the first man. And what it seems as though Luke is impressing on us, the readers, is that Jesus was the Son of God and the Son of Adam. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, is fully God. And he took on a human nature and became fully man. After the genealogy of Jesus, Luke picks up the story of what took place after Jesus' baptism. We might expect him to begin his public ministry right here. He's baptized by John. He's anointed by the Spirit. He's declared to be the Son of God. This seems to be a good launching point for Jesus to go out and begin to preach the gospel and heal the sick and call disciples to himself. But that is not what happens. Instead, the Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted. It was necessary for Jesus to go into the wilderness to be tempted 
before he began his public ministry. Three times the devil tempted Jesus to turn away from God during this time in the wilderness. Again, this was not a surprise attack. The Spirit was the one who led Jesus into the wilderness. This was God's plan. Jesus fasted for 40 days in the wilderness. And as any of us would be, he was hungry. Another reminder that Jesus took on human flesh, that he added to himself a human nature. In the first temptation, the devil prayed on Jesus' hunger. If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. The devil knew Jesus' identity as the Son of God, but spoke in such a way as if Jesus needed to prove himself to him. And what the devil seemed to be doing here was tempting Jesus to take care of his physical needs and desires on his own without trusting and obeying God to provide. But Jesus would not do such a thing. He responded by saying, it is written. And then he proceeded to quote from the scriptures, specifically Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, where Moses, preparing the Israelites to enter the promised land, said, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And of course, we're supposed to see these connections. We're supposed to see these connections between the Israelites' time in the wilderness and Jesus' time in the wilderness. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days, which reminds the Lord testing Israel in the wilderness for 40 days. Years. Tom Schreiner writes, we think of how Israel as God's son failed in the wilderness, but we shall see how Jesus as God's son and as one who is fully human continues to trust and obey. Jesus, who is the true Israel, succeeded where Israel failed. Tom Schreiner also writes, Adam disobeyed in a garden where he had everything he needed and desired. Whereas Jesus obeys in the harsh wilderness and after fasting for 40 days. In Jesus' response, we see that the Lord is the one who sustains life. We need him and we need his word. We need the Lord to sustain us. And we demonstrate our dependence on him and our confidence in his ability to sustain us by trusting and feeding on his word. With the second temptation, the devil offered Jesus the authority and glory of the kingdoms of the world if he would only worship him. Now, did the devil really have the power to make this offer? 
In a limited sense, yes. But in an ultimate sense, no. In Revelation chapter 13, we see how the beast gives the dragon his power, his throne, and great authority. In some way, he is able to give something of this nature. The devil did tempt Jesus with power, authority, and glory. But God is the only one who can give this in a true and eternal way. God promised this to the Son, but there was a path he was required to walk. It was necessary for his suffering to precede his glory. And Jesus knew this. We'll see this in Luke chapter 9, verse 22, where Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus knew it was necessary for him to suffer, to be rejected, to be tortured, to absorb the wrath of God for his people and to be killed before he would be raised. So what was the devil offering him? He was offering a shortcut. He was offering power and glory without suffering. He was offering Jesus a crown without a cross. Brothers and sisters, I don't think we can overstate what was at stake here. If Jesus gives in to temptation and takes the shortcut, where does that leave us? Once again, Jesus responded, it is written. And this time he referenced Deuteronomy 6.13. In 6.13 to 14, we read, it is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. There is one true living God, and he alone is worthy of our worship. And he is worthy of all worship and all praise and all glory. And he alone is the one whom we are to serve. And he is a jealous God. He does not tolerate the worship of false gods who are no gods at all. Jesus did not give in to this temptation. He refused to disobey God's word. He would not take a shortcut to glory. He would not turn from the path that led to the cross. With the third temptation, the devil brought Jesus to the high point of the temple and once again referenced his identity as the Son of God. And this time, he challenged him to throw himself down, to prove that he is the Son of God by throwing himself off the temple so that God would rescue him in a spectacular way. But this time, the devil used scripture 
to justify the actions he tempted Jesus to take. He quoted from Psalm chapter 91, verses 11 and 12. The devil's rationale was that in this psalm, the Lord promised that angels will protect the people of the Lord. And if the Lord commands angels to guard his people, surely the angels will guard the Son of God. The devil was familiar with the Scripture, and he knew how to twist the Scripture. Do you see how dangerous this is? Do you see how dangerous it is when the devil, who is familiar with the Scripture, can take it and twist it in such a way that he can use it to justify sin? trying to tell Jesus to do something that is sinful by using Scripture. Brothers and sisters, this impresses upon us the need to know Scripture, the need to rightly interpret Scripture, the need to rightly apply Scripture. Many people will use Scripture in a twisted way to justify sin. People can use Scripture in such a way that that sounds really good. Oh, they really know the Bible. But it can be applied in a way that ultimately leads one away from the truth of God's Word and obedience to Him and submitting to Him as our God and King. Of course, Jesus was not fooled by this twisting of Scripture. Jesus responded by quoting Deuteronomy 6.16. He said, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus refused to put God to the test by demanding that God prove his faithfulness in some unusual and extraordinary way. We are not to put God to the test. We are not to call upon God to prove himself to us. God in his kindness and his mercy has gone far above and beyond anything we need to prove himself to us, to prove his faithfulness, to prove his kindness, to prove his his goodness. We are not to put him to the test. He does not need to prove himself to us. After the third temptation, we read that the devil left him until an opportune time. It's not that Jesus was no longer tempted after this period in the wilderness. Temptation would continue. The devil would look for another opportune time to continue to test and tempt Jesus away from faithfulness to the Lord. Perhaps he felt that most acutely in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he was crucified. He would continue to be tempted, but what we see here in the wilderness is indicative of Jesus' success throughout his whole life in resisting the devil, resisting temptations to sin. And isn't it amazing how Jesus responded to every temptation by quoting Scripture? It is written, it is written, it is said, And all his quotes came from the book of Deuteronomy. 
Maybe the only application here is if you want to resist temptation, memorize the book of Deuteronomy. (laughs) Seemed to work well. For Jesus, the word of God was authoritative, needed to be obeyed, and provided power and strength to resist temptation. What is your view of Scripture? How near and dear is Scripture to your heart? What role does it play in your life? I greatly appreciate the way Kevin DeYoung describes Jesus' view of Scripture. Here's what he writes. Jesus held Scripture in the highest possible esteem. He knew his Bible intimately and loved it deeply. He often spoke with the language of Scripture. He easily alluded to Scripture. And in his moments of greatest trial and weakness, like being tempted by the devil or being killed on a cross, he quoted Scripture. His mission was to fulfill Scripture, and his teaching always upheld Scripture. He never disrespected, never disregarded, never disagreed with a single text of Scripture. He affirmed every bit of law, prophecy, narrative, and poetry. He never for a moment accepted the legitimacy of anyone anywhere violating, ignoring, refining, or rejecting Scripture. Jesus believed in the inspiration of Scripture, all of it. He accepted the chronology, the miracles, and the authorial ascriptions as giving the straightforward facts of history. He believed in keeping the spirit of the law without ever minimizing the letter of the law. He affirmed the human authorship of Scripture while at the same time bearing witness to the ultimate divine authorship of the Scriptures. He treated the Bible as a necessary word, a sufficient word, a clear word, and the final word. It was never acceptable in his mind to contradict Scripture or stand above Scripture. He believed the Bible was all true, all edifying, all important, and all about him. He believed absolutely that the Bible was from God and was absolutely free from error. What Scripture says, God says. And what God said was recorded infallibly in Scripture. It is impossible to revere the scriptures more deeply or affirm them more completely than Jesus did. Jesus submitted his will to the scriptures, committed his brain to studying the scriptures, and humbled his heart to obey the scriptures. The Lord Jesus, God's Son, and our Savior believed his Bible was the word of God down to the sentences, to the phrases, to the words, to the smallest letter, to the tiniest specks, and that nothing in all those specks and in all those books in his holy Bible could ever be broken. If you are a follower of Jesus, it is good for you to understand how Jesus viewed Scripture. And we are to follow him in that regard. We are to follow him in loving, cherishing, studying, memorizing, obeying, fully submitting to God's word. Well, before we continue to the third point, let's step back for a moment and consider what is the main point of this passage. What is the main point of this passage here within the context of Luke's gospel, within the context of scripture? Here's what I would say. As the son of God and son of Adam, Jesus triumphed over the devil, resisting temptation by perfectly obeying God. So why is this critically important for us? 
Well, first we need to understand that Adam's failure is our failure. In Romans 5.12, we read, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam's sin and failure is our sin and failure. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have all failed. We have all failed to resist temptation. We have all sinned and disobeyed God. Not one of us has succeeded. Therefore, we need a Savior. Moreover, we need a sinless Savior. Because we have failed to resist temptation, we need one who can fight and win our battle against temptation and sin for us. We need a hero. We need someone to rescue us. We need a savior. We need one who has succeeded where we have all failed. Jesus succeeded where we have failed. He succeeded for us. Not only did he die for us, he resisted temptation for us. The gospel is not try harder, do better, be the best version of yourself. No, the gospel is the good news that God saves sinners like you and me who are completely undeserving, who cannot save ourselves. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, through his life, death, and resurrection, we too have disobeyed God, our creator and our king. We too are rebels who deserve punishment, death, hell. But God in his kindness and his mercy has provided a way for us to escape the punishment we deserve by sending Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, into the world who took on a human nature and lived a life without sin so that he could offer himself as the perfect spotless sacrifice on our behalf at the cross. Jesus died on the cross as a substitute, taking the punishment we deserve in our place so that everyone who repents of their sins and believes in Christ receives the forgiveness of their sins and the gift of eternal life. And we know this, we can be sure of this, because after Jesus died and was buried, he rose from the grave. He was vindicated. God was declaring to the world, I have accepted his sacrifice on behalf for the sins of my people. Jesus proved he was alive, appearing to people for 40 days, hundreds of people. And then he ascended into heaven where he's now seated at the right hand of the Father. Friend, if you're not a Christian, I urge you, to believe in Christ and be saved. You too, like the rest of us, cannot save yourself. You are a sinner in need of a savior. And Christ 
is a great savior. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, we read, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus knew no sin. And yet God punished him as a sinner, pouring out his wrath upon Jesus for our sins so that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, everyone who repents of their sins and believes in Christ is not only forgiven of all their sins, but is also given the gift of Christ's righteousness, Christ's perfectly righteous life, which he lived because he successfully resisted temptation, is credited to you who believe. You receive credit for what he did, how he lived, how he resisted temptation. Isn't that amazing? Jesus succeeded for us. But that's not all. In Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, we read, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Not only did he succeed for us, but he identifies with us and is able to sympathize with us. He identifies with us in our weaknesses, in those moments of temptation. He sympathizes with us. We have, we have a Savior who is not far off, remote, distant, unaware. No, he identifies with us, sympathizes with us. He is close to us. He is near to us. He understands us. He understands the challenge of resisting temptation even better than we do. And C.S. Lewis articulated this so perfectly. He wrote, no man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. That is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. He knows. He understands. He identifies with us and sympathizes with us. And finally, he helps us. 
He succeeded for us. He's able to identify with us and sympathize with us. And he helps us. In Hebrews 2.18, we read, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That includes you and me. He is able to help us when we are tempted. Jesus is able to help you and he wants to help you. Christians, because you are united to Christ by faith, his power is now at work in you to help you resist temptation. You don't have the power in yourself to resist temptation, but his power is at work in you and he is eager to help you. Friends, the son, as the son of God and the son of Adam, Jesus triumphed over the devil, resisting temptation and perfectly obeying God. He is a wonderful and mighty savior. If you are a Christian, here is how I hope you will apply this passage to your life. Three quick things. Rest in his finished work, resist temptation in his strength, and read his word. Rest in his finished work. You have failed. You cannot fix that problem. But Christ resisted temptation, lived a life without sin, and died on the cross for your sake. And he rose from the grave, conquering death. Though we have failed, we can rest in his finished work on our behalf. We can find comfort and peace in Christ, knowing that he has succeeded he has fought and won the battle for us. Resist temptation in his strength. Knowing that he has succeeded for us and we have been united to him gives us all the motivation we need to live for him, to resist temptation. And he gives us his strength and his power to do so. And he desires for us to be strengthened and empowered to resist temptation, knowing that in so doing, we live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12 through 13, we read, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Don't be proud. Don't think that you're not susceptible to falling. We're all susceptible to giving the temptation to falling. Don't be prideful, but look to the Lord. He is faithful. He will not let you be overwhelmed by temptation. He will provide the way of escape. Resist temptation in his strength. Finally, read his word. Look to the word. His word strengthens us. His word encourages us and comforts us. His word builds us up and equips us to follow him in this life with all of its challenges. 
His word is good. Praise God, we have a mighty Savior in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you for your word. Your word is good, and it is good for us. Lord, we thank you for the scripture we have studied this morning. We pray you would help us to remember what we have studied in your word. We pray that you would help us to apply your word to our hearts and to our lives. We thank you and praise you for Jesus, our Lord and Savior, who succeeded for us, who identifies with us and sympathizes with us and who helps us. Oh, we pray, Lord, that we will rest in his finished work. We pray that we will resist temptation in his strength. And we pray that we will read and cherish his word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.